Now we're at verse 5, Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The Apostle Paul clearly explains his reason for leaving Titus in Crete. One would wonder why would a a commissioned person like Titus have to go to an island Crete It's a small island compared to other places around the world, but he had a desire for the gospel to spread. Again, he is preaching and teaching in places that are remote and distant lands and islands. Even Isaiah predicted that he would preach, the gospel would be preached to the many islands around the world. And this is one such island. Southeast of Greece and It's about 50 miles wide and about 270 miles long. It's not very big. Yet the gospel had reached there and it needed to be established there. In the first few centuries of the Christian church, we have evidence, plenty of evidence, that there was a thriving gospel that was there in the island of Crete. And so whatever Titus did, whatever Paul the apostle did, it laid a good foundation for centuries ahead. Now, the, this island of Crete, over the years, we'll see this in verse 12, over the years, in ancient times, and even in modern English, this island, it was a notorious place. It says in verse 12, 112, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. One of their own patriots said this about his own countrymen. He said this about his own countrymen. That this is the way these people are. And in the English language, to cretinize is to make somebody or to promote loose living, lying, deception, uh, exploitation of one person of another. Sometimes we'll call somebody a cretin. And why? Because it comes from this, this era known. Even the Greeks and the pagans knew that the people of Crete were very, very vile and wicked people. Notorious for lying and for exploiting one and another, and even living a lazy life. They're called lazy gluttons. Okay, so this is the situation. This is the circumstance that Titus has to face. This is important because whatever he's instructing Titus to do here is a very high standard. And you'll see that even though these uh, these people were wicked and base, they still had to rise up to a high standard. When we face wicked and base people, it doesn't mean that we can compromise the gospel and just make them improve a little here and a little there. They ought to improve to the standard that God has for them. Not for whatever standards we invent, but for God's standard. Now, he has to set in order what remains. Apparently, when they first went and preached the gospel, there were some converts, but then some division occurred, some factions, because of false teachers coming from the outside or some already in the inside, and these people created divisions, disharmony, contentions, and so Titus was kept there and sent there in order to consolidate the gospel, to consolidate the people who truly believed the gospel, to teach them what they needed to know to have harmony, to have peace in their local churches and families. 
And how does this start? It starts by appointing elders in every city as I directed you. He has to appoint them. Now, it's not as though Titus had the authority of an apostle necessarily, but it's likely that he served as a guide or a moderator for those people in churches that had these problems for him to be their consultant to give them guidance into the way that they should conduct their churches and he was teaching them in that sense. It's not as though he was exclusively going from city to city and village to village and appointing men as elders whomever he thought should be there. It's likely not the case that way as though he was doing it with an authoritarian hand. Yes, he was respected, and yes, they should listen to him. As he says in Titus 2.15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In that sense, they should pay attention to him, but they should do it in cooperation with the local assemblies, understanding who it was that was godly among them that they could um, raise up to be their leaders who fit these qualifications. We also note that it's elders in the plural. Each time that this term occurs in the New Testament, such as Acts 14.23, James chapter 5.13 to 16, and here, uh, that the term is in the plural. Because local churches need to have elders in the plural, so that it's not one man who is leading the charge over the whole local assembly, but there's a group of godly men consulting one another, well qualified according to these qualifications, who guide the local church. In this letter, he does not treat the deacons. The deacons are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as being another office in the local church. There are elders and deacons. And according to universal interpretation, the term elder is a synonym for pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop. These are various terms that mean the same thing. In fact, in this uh, letter, in verse 7, he uses the, the synonym overseer as uh, a term that relates to elders in verse 5. So elders and overseers here in this very passage mean the same thing. The same position, the same office is fulfilled in this way. Okay, then... We'll note in verse 6, he says, namely, he specifies and instructs us exactly the kind of elders that should be guiding and leading churches. If any man be above reproach. Above reproach does not mean sinless, but it means somebody who does not have a very obvious and public and shameful stain in his life. He's not known to be a drunkard. He's not known to be a liar. He's not known to be an extortionist. He's not known to be an adulterer. Everybody respects him. Everybody knows that he's an upstanding man. Not a perfect man and sinless man, but he is a reputable man. That's what it means to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, here, his relationship to his wife is in view, and he must have a godly and proper relationship with his one wife. Then verse 6 says, having children who believe. Your Bible might say faithful children or children who believe. These children 
ought to be ones, if they are young, they should be listening, they should be hearing, they should be learning the gospel, and they should be children who are obedient. They should be listening to the, the instruction of their parents in terms of the gospel, but also in terms of their regular and daily behavior. They shouldn't be unruly children. There, there shouldn't be brats and rats among our children who are um, the children of potential elders. They should be under control. He also says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Here, dissipation, looseness and, and without self-control. The, there should be no dissipation and there should be no rebellion. The, this is the kind of godly behavior that should be evident. Verse 7, for the overseer, notice the term overseer, he oversees, so he is responsible as a watchman, like Ezekiel chapter 3 and 33, he's a watchman who's watching over the flock of God, making sure that no wolves come in among them and that there's no division and fighting among the sheep. He's an overseer. He must be above reproach as God's steward. The steward or the manager, he, is, he has a charge. God has put him in a position so that he might properly guide those under him. And if he does not properly guide those under him, he's shirking his responsibility. He's not being faithful to the responsibility that God has given to him. And God will hold him accountable Amen. one day. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1 So it is an, um, a trust and it is a responsibility that's before God. That's the way that the elders should look at this. Verse 7, not self-willed. Self-willed. He's not always, he's not looking after his own interests, but he's looking after the interests of others. He's not, he's not trying to propound whatever he wants to do, whatever he thinks, but he is sincerely concerned about the needs of the people. He should be loving his neighbor as himself. He should be loving his brother, therefore showing that he loves God. Romans 15, 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who, who reproached you fell upon me. Christ was not self-willed. He lived for the will of the Father and for the benefit of the people. In the same way, the pastor or elder should not be living for himself, but the will of the Father and for the benefit of the people. Verse 7, should not be quick-tempered. Not be quick-tempered. He should have his emotions and thoughts under control so that he is reserved. He's able to withstand whenever something irritates him or angers him, something that's out of line and out of place. He shouldn't be quick-tempered and fight back and lash out in word or in action because that kind of thing should not happen in a situation when you have to deal with people. You have to maintain your temper in private and in public, in all circumstances. 
not addicted to wine. When he says not addicted to wine, there are pl plenty of men who are desirous of being addicted to this or that, whether it's wine or tobacco or food or sweets or whatever it is, they are addicted to it and they don't have any self-control and they show that without this self-control they are unfit to lead and guide other people. Right. Specifically here, it, it is the wine because this is a common stumbling block to many, many men. They don't know how to practice self-control. These attributes here, self-willed, quick-tempered, uh, addicted to wine, and even the next one, not pugnacious, all of these require self-control. All of these require temperance. These all require the ability to curb your desires, to control your desires, so that you regulate them, you have them under control. You don't let something or the other entrap you and make you indulgent in that or this or that matter. No. Pugnacious. Pugn now, this is not a term we use very much, but to be pugnacious is to be quarrelsome, to be fighting, being ready to brawl, to punch somebody, to use a curse word, to spit in somebody's face. You, you don't have the ability to control your own bodily actions. You're always trying to come up with the fight. And some people do this by instigating it, and some people do this by their reaction to something that they dislike happening in front of them. We have to stay away from that and stay away from men who are that way. Men who are that way have no self-control. And not fond of sordid gain. Sordid gain. This sordid gain, to be sordid is to be deceitful and to be uh, corrupt in the way that you accumulate wealth. To be deceitful and corrupt in the way you accumulate wealth. Well, the pastor, he should not be one who pursues that kind of wealth accumulation. How do pastors do so? Many pastors, they pursue wealth accumulation by compromising the gospel, by softening the expectations of what the gospel is. They don't preach against man's sin. They don't preach repentance from man's sin and turning to Christ and giving up their old ways. They don't preach those kinds of things. They don't say to somebody who has a lot of money, that is sin, that is wrong. In fact, they will say, peace, peace to that person. They'll say, everything's just fine. What you're doing is not sin. What you're doing it has no problem. It has no problem between you and God. Micah, Micah the prophet, in Micah 3, verse 5, he dealt with people like this. This was 700 to 800 years before the time of the Apostle Paul and Titus. Human nature, because of human sin, is just the same. Titus, or Micah 3, 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, the false prophets, who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. See, the people who are, are rich and influential, who are popular, who 
put something in their mouth. They give them food to eat. Because if those rich people weren't around, there wouldn't be any income for the pastor. So those people, whatever they do, because they give me food to eat, I'll say peace to them. But to the other people who don't give me anything, who have nothing to do with this, I'm going to declare holy war against them. They say they're for peace, but it's only peace for the, the, those who are soothsaying. Those people who are saying, you're just a, a wonderful man. You're, you're, just a, you're just winsome and charming. I, I, I love uh, listening to you. The, what, to those kinds of people, they'll say peace. Because those kinds of people also, with the flattery, are also the, those with, with the fat wallets. And that's why they, they get along. But that's not the way it should be. Sordid gain is... Uh, a constant problem, and it's a problem that every minister of the gospel faces. But he has to have a characteristic of not being fond of it. He should not be fond of sordid gain. He has to show proof that he's not in it for the money. He's not getting a big bank account. He's not trying to have 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 people in his church so that he can drive around in an expensive car, have a million-dollar house, have a private jet, and things of that nature. That's not the reason to go into the ministry. Anybody who's doing that is pr promoting a false ministry. He is after sordid gain. He loves money, and it lo the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. On the other hand, Notice verse 8. But he should be hospitable. Practicing hospitality is one way to manifest in the opposite if you do it sincerely. If you do practice hospitality genuinely, then it is a way that you show you are generous and you're not trying to suck the blood out of everybody. You actually want to help others, get to know others, eat food with them, help them with their lodging, help them with whatever. Hospitality is a way for us to show our generosity. We're here because we want to promote the ministry. We love the people and we want to help them out and we want them to be our friends. We want to be their friends in a right and genuine way, not in a false way. And that shows in hospitality. Loving what is good. He must love what is good. Whatever the Bible says, whatever comes from God the Father is good. James 1.17 Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In fact, uh, recently, very recently, I was talking to somebody who was pointing out that Genesis 1 and 2 say that God saw all that he made and behold it was very good. What God created as good from the very beginning is that which we should have as much as possible in this life. All that is virtuous, all that is godly, all that is right, that's what we ought to pursue. Good. As opposed to evil. Evil, sin, pain, death, all those kinds of things are contrary to what is good. The world pursues death. The world pursues evil and sin. But we ought to be the opposite, pursuing and loving what is good. They love death, but we ought to love that which is good and that which has life. Sensible. 
common sense, but also spiritual sense. Some men have no common sense whatsoever. We call it common sense, but they don't have it. We wonder how it is that they could make certain decisions in life, certain even monetary decisions. How is it that they could do this or that in life? Those kinds of men are unfit to lead and rule churches. They are unfit. But also, spiritual sense. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we learned that one who does not follow the truth does not have any sense. Notice, in 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Whoever is living according to the whims of the devil does not have any sense. And we have to discern if somebody who is a candidate for elder is living according to the devil's ways or living according to Christ's ways. If he's living according to the devil, he has no sense. No sense. Then he should be just. To be just or righteous, this is a requirement. Why? Because often you will have to deal with matters of justice. Pastors have to deal with matters of justice. They hear one thing from one person, they hear another from another, and then they don't know what, what, and what to believe, who to believe. They have to be those who are not going to be persuaded. They're not going to defer to the great or to the poor. They're going to practice fairness and justice. Justice, justice, justice. That's what they should pursue. And on the basis of two or three witnesses. Not being swayed by this or that person, by this or that, um, uh, even especially gossip and slander can easily spread in the local church. But one who's pursuing justice, who's going to check the facts before he acts, he's the one that should lead and guide churches. Devout. Being devout or devoted. Being devout or devoted. Devoted to the Lord is what he means. We ought to be devoted to the Lord through the Word of God, through prayer, through commitment to an uncompromised pursuit of the gospel. This is the kind of devotion that the pastor should have. He cannot be one who is half-heartedly devoted to God. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James 1, 5-8 a double-minded man is unstable. He's not devoted to the things of God. He's pursuing the things of God to the extent that they benefit him. But really, he manipulates the name of God in order to get what he wants from men. He wants to get what he wants, whether it's stability, whether it's financial security, whether it's the fame, whether it's things like that. He wants from men and he uses the name of God for it. That means he's not devoted to God. He's not committed to God. He's not prayerful to God and dependent on God and trusting God to provide for all of his needs. Therefore, if he does not have this devotion, he's unfit. Self-controlled. Self-control. This is identified in Galatians 5, to 23 as a fruit of the Spirit. 
to have self-control. Self-control, as I said before, could well summarize all of the sins mentioned in verse 7. Yet self-control has to be manifested in every area of life. It has to be manifested in every area. We have natural inclinations. All of us have these natural inclinations with our eyes, our mouths, our ears, our hands, our feet, everywhere, our, our, our desires, our appetites. We all have them, but in every regard, we ought to live a disciplined life, a disciplined, self-controlled life. Now, these are attributes, these are characteristics, these are virtues that should be evident in many pastors, in every pastor. But the opposite is actually the case. From this list, probably we could exclude the vast majority of current ministers of the gospel. Just on this basis, we could exclude the vast majority of ministers of the gospel. And this is why churches are in disarray. This is why there is confusion with the gospel. This is why very few places teach the true gospel from the Bible. Very few places do that and produce godly people. They're chasing after their dreams and fantasies instead of pursuing the things of God. Now, if th those character qualities are enough to exclude the vast majority of pastors, notice verse 9. This, in verse 9, is the only active quality or functional quality or requirement that is mentioned of the pastor. And this, too, will exclude a lot more, too. Okay? Verse 9. What should he do? He should be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He must hold fast. He has to grasp onto and never let go. That speaks of no compromise. That speaks of resolute uh, commitment to the truth. He has to be that way. He cannot be uh, willy-nilly. He cannot be wishy-washy. He cannot be that way at all. He has to hold fast to the truth. He calls it the faithful word. The faithful word is this faithful word of the gospel, the word of truth. Verse 1, his word, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, the f this word is this word of the gospel that he must believe and without compromise, cling on to this. Then he says, it's, which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching that produces godliness. He said this also. He said this in verse 1. The, word of the, uh, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The teaching of the apostles, which is the same as the gospel, this teaching produces the kind of result God intends. This teaching is in conformity to the gospel. It must produce godliness. And why do we say godliness? Because of, of verse 9, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Commonly, either people are denying the holiness that's required in the gospel or the exclusive nature of believing in Christ that's found in the gospel. 
It's usually one of those two things that they are denying. But in this case, the teaching must uphold both of these. And he note, noted, notice here that there are two aspects or two ways in which this is maintained. The first, he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He has to have the ability. He has to have the God-endowed ability to exhort in sound doctrine. If he does not have that ability, he's excluded from being a preacher and teacher of the gospel. He shouldn't be doing that at all. He can do many other things if he's a godly man, but he cannot be a preacher and teacher of the gospel. He should not be a pastor if he's unable to teach. And two things he should do. To exhort in sound doctrine. The sound doctrine, the wholesome and healthy doctrine, is the doctrine of the gospel. And he has to exhort. To exhort or exhortation includes both a biblical definition and an English definition. Both of them include encouraging and warning. They include encouraging and warning the group of believers. This is what happens in Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews. Throughout the letter, we know that there is much encouragement there, but there is also much warning there. Do we not? That we have many passages in the book of Hebrews that has both. And at the end of his letter, in Hebrews 13.22, the apostle says in Hebrews 13.22, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you, Briefly, He calls his letter a word of exhortation. And we have this perfect example that exhortation to the believers includes encouragement. This is what God has accomplished for us. This is the hope set before us. This is the, these are the promises God has made to us. These are the encouragements. But then there's the warnings. We have to be living before God in the fear of God. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must not reject what we hear. We must proclaim what we hear to others faithfully. All of this is warning. That's what we have in the book of Hebrews. The pastor has to do this to the group of believers. Exhort in sound doctrine. But then, to the unbelievers, to the contrarians, refute those who contradict. He also has to be able to refute those who distract and detract from the gospel. He has to. If he doesn't do that, he's not being a good pastor. He's not being faithful to his calling. There will be many, many issues, both theological and moral issues that come up. And both theologically and morally, those issues and heresies that come up have to be refuted. He has to know the Bible enough. He has to know the issues enough. He has to know the circumstances enough to be able to refute those who contradict. The people who are promoting these falsehoods have to have their mouths silenced. Why? For, for two reasons. The people of God, they need to have an assurance. They need to have confidence that the gospel is true. When people say something contrary to the gospel, they are troubled in their faith many times. They wonder, am I believing the right way? How could that nice person over there be so wrong? They wonder. And so they are troubled. They become less faithful. They become less 
um, in pursuit of godliness. These kinds of things happen when the people of the church hear false doctrine. This is why the false doctrine has to be refuted. If it's not refuted, it stands, and it stands as though it's got a legitimate leg on which to stand, right. when it really doesn't. People need to know it's worthless and it's, and it's futile. It will lead to destruction. They need to know that. And that happens by refutation. It also has to happen because the unbelievers who raise the objections, we will see this in verse 11. It says they must be silenced. The unbelievers need to be silenced so that they do not cause trouble anymore. And also, if they are silenced, a few among them will eventually realize how stupid and foolish their beliefs are and come to the knowledge of the truth. Sometimes that happens when they are silenced. They contemplate it. They realize, I was saying all kinds of ignorant things, and that man, he, he knew what to say. And so then they begin to uh, double, um, you know, go back and have some second thoughts on what they were thinking and believing, and a few of them come to believe in the gospel. But that would not never have happened if somebody more knowledgeable and more able to refute it had spoken up. If he had never spoken up, then he would have walked away smug and thinking that he was right and that he should continue believing what he believes. The pastor has to have the ability to do both of these, to exhort and to refute. And if he does not, He's unqualified. He should not be a pastor. Now, let's describe, or he describes the problems in verses 10 to 16. What were some of the problems, heresies, heresies both theological and moral, that were happening? Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Many rebellious men. You see, there are few true believers compared to the many. We think often that there are many, many believers compared to the world. When actually, even among those who claim to be believers, many of them are rebellious and few of them are true believers. In the Bible, they are called the remnant. They're called the survivors. They're called a tenth portion the Bible has names to describe we who truly believe. And we who truly believe are few in number, percentage compared to the others who claim to believe. We're not talking about the Christian world or Christendom compared to the uh, pagan world like the Hindu and Islamic world. We're not talking about that. We're talking within Christendom, there are few people who truly believe. And many of them are rebellious. They rebel against the authority of Christ and His apostles. They're empty talkers. They pr promote a false hope. They promote false assurances. They say peace and safety. They say peace, as we saw in Micah chapter 3, verse 5. Peace to the ones who give them something to bite with their mouths. But against the one who won't feed them or don't feed them, they declare holy war. This is what happens. They are empty talkers. They don't really have substance in what they're saying. They just keep jabbering and jabbering and jabbering because they have a platform, because they have a large following, whatever. Many people listen to them when actually what they say is empty 
vacuous, dark, and devilish. But they keep talking. And they deceive. They are deceivers. They claim to know the truth. They claim to proclaim the truth. But really, they're covering it up. Imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 This is going to happen, and it will continue to happen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and it is no wonder if his messengers do the same. 2 Corinthians 11.13-15 We should not be surprised. Deceivers are everywhere. But practice discernment. How are we going to practice discernment by knowing what the Bible says. Right. Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 clearly says that we have our senses trained to discern good and evil by knowledge of the Word of God. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. And among these people, those of the circumcision. The circumcision is another way of describing the Hebrew people or the Jewish people and especially the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, they are the ones who are usually in mind here as the circumcision because the Jews would circumcise themselves. Gentiles typically would not. So this is a designation. And it would be natural in the course of events for the gospel to reach them and some of them to believe, but then some of them to reject it and then cause division in those synagogues where there were a few believers, but the many unbelievers, and then start to persuade the few to turn them away from the gospel, to dissuade them from continuing to believe the gospel as preached by Paul and Titus and others. This is what would happen. Because the Jews are the ones who originally had the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. They would have the know-how, the knowledge of it, and they would naturally be the authority. They knew about it. They knew about it more than Gentiles did. So they would be consulted. And since they would be consulted, and they would promote themselves as being more knowledgeable, they were the ones who would instigate persecution and rebellion more often than the Gentiles. Not that the Gentiles had a better spirit. Not that the Gentile unbelievers had a, a pure heart and a clean heart. No, not that. It's just that the Jews had the position of having access to the Word of God. They had the history and the knowledge base, and they used that to undermine people. So this is why he's saying, especially those of the circumcision. They especially are what I'm talking about here. Why? Because in the churches, you'd have Jews and Gentiles. Then, what is the right response to this scenario? Verse 11 who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. They have to be, they have to have their mouths shut. Now, it's not possible for us to walk around with a weapon or with a roll of tape and start sealing people's mouths, right? He doesn't mean it that way. What he means is, like Jesus did in Matthew 22. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees 
would come and ask Jesus questions, and then Jesus would ask them a question. He asked them a question at the end, Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46. And when he asked them a question, he asked them a question that he knew they would not answer and that would keep them quiet. So it ends this way, Matthew twenty-two forty-six, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That's the kind of refutation that is necessary. That's what Jesus practiced, and that's what Titus is supposed to do. Titus is supposed to do that, and he's supposed to train others to do the same. Even we, even we, if we just practice righteousness, we are characterized as putting others to shame. And when we put others to shame, we're, in a way, we are silencing them. 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. On the day of visitation, that is the day of judgment, they're not going to criticize and ridicule us anymore. In fact, they're going to be keeping quiet on that and glorifying God because of what good things we did. But in the meantime, chapter 2, verse 16, 1 Peter 2, 15. 15, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Do right and silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 3, verse 16, 1 Peter 3, 16, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There is a sense in which we silence and put people to shame now by our righteous life and our refutation of their wickedness. And also on the day of judgment, ultimately, they will be put to shame and silenced forever. On, the, on those issues. We should be practicing this now. I say this because many times we hear, no, we just need to love on them. We just need to evangelize. We just need to be positive and share the good news of Christ. We hear this very often. But that's wrong and that's unbiblical. What we're supposed to do is explain the whole gospel, not just the good parts of the gospel, but also the bad parts, the, the parts about their sin and the holiness of God and the wrath of God to come and eternal punishment. We have to explain those things to them. And then when there is rejection and objection, we have to have a refutation. If they are open to hearing what we say, we have to say it. We have to say it and tell them this is the way. Walk in it. They have to be silenced. So God does use argumentation. God does use logic and reason based on the Word. A perfect example is Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, in 18.24 to 28, we have a disciple named Apollos. Apollos was very knowledgeable in the Scriptures, and he helped the believers He helped the believers. We'll pick it up at verse 27. Notice how he helped the believers. 
Acts 18, 27. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Remember, we said earlier that one purpose in refuting unbelievers is to help the believers. Okay? He says, it says here, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. How did he do it? The next verse. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He helped the believers because he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He made, he made them look shameful in public, refuted them in public, silenced them in public to help the believers. And every minister and pastor should be able to do so. Now, look at Titus 1.11. Why do we have to practice this? Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching false doctrines, yeah. upsetting whole families. It's not as though they're just bothering a person here or there. They're upsetting whole households. They're creating conflict and disharmony in households. In our study of First and Second Timothy, we know that this happens. We know that this happens. This is why these instructions are here. Notice, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Then it says... In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4, 3, 4. He must be one, that is the minister, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're still speaking of the upsetting whole families. 1 Timothy chapter 5, false teachers don't practice the following. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. The children and the grandchildren should be helping their widowed relative. They should be before the church does. And only after certain qualifications are met, met in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But when that's not happening, it creates division in the families because the widow is uncared for. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. 
holding, speaking of evildoers, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the practice of false teachers. They enter into households and create division between husband and wife. This is what they're doing. And they do it, according to Titus 1.11, for the sake of sordid gain. What the godly pastor should not be doing, as it says in Titus 1.7, not fond of sordid gain, the false teachers do. They do all of these things. They promote falsehoods for the sake of sordid gain. Oh, no, no. That, that's, that, that practice, that lifestyle, that orientation, that thing you'd like to do, that's not a sin. No, no. The Bible doesn't consider it a sin. And even if it is a sin, God's grace will cover it. You'll be just fine. This is what they do because they want more and more people to come to them, more and more people to give to them. That's what they want. That's why they preach the way they do. But that kind of gain or income is sordid. It's corrupt. Verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says, one of themselves, a Cretan himself... So he's native to the island, and he calls him a prophet of their own. When he says prophet, he doesn't mean a true prophet. He's using the word prophet in the sense of poet and teacher, sage, somebody that they respect, because prophets were also uh, poets in one sense, but also the poets were prophetic in the sense that they used, um, they used poetry to explain life, to explain the truths of life. So in the Greek culture, poets and prophets, sometimes these words were used interchangeably, and that's what the apostle is doing. He's not saying that this was one of their true prophets. So, and who is he quoting? He's quoting Epimenides of Crete, Epimenides in a book that he wrote. So, what does he say? Cretans, my countrymen, he's saying, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You can't trust them. They practice evil. They're wild creatures. When he says evil beasts, he means wild beasts. The beasts of the field, the nocturnal creatures that are untamable, the ones that you don't keep in your house or in your barn. You don't keep them there. They're not domesticated kind of animals. They're wild animals. And wild animals are compared to wild men who are evil men, who practice evil. And they prey upon the domesticated animals, right? The wolves prey upon the sheep. And that's why they are evil and they are beasts. Lazy gluttons. They're happy to indulge themselves and they don't want to work. They're happy to indulge themselves. They don't want to work. They don't want to earn their living. They don't want to help others with their earnings. They just want to be leeches and rats feeding off of other people. That's what they want. And he calls them lazy gluttons. So this is the kind of atmosphere that Titus encountered. He did not have a very easy situation. 
And yet he was called to this. He was supposed to be faithful in this situation. Now the apostle quotes the countryman so that he has another testimony. The apostle believes this about the Cretans, but he also knows that even the Cretan, who is an unbeliever, knows this about his own countrymen. So the testimony of two verifies that the Cretans are this way. And that's why he says in verse 13, this testimony is true. Yes, true. And because it's true, for this reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. We don't look at reproof or even severe reproof in good terms these days. When somebody speaks forthrightly and, and very severely about a subject matter, we take him to be arrogant. We take him to be somebody who does not know how to talk to people. We take him to be somebody who doesn't have any charm. He, he doesn't have a sophisticated way of expressing himself to other people to convince them of the truth. This is what people say. This is what people do today. You cannot be speaking plainly and severely against the sin. And if you do so, you are branded with those kinds of ignoble terms. No. Actually, if we know that their disease is cancerous, if we know that that disease will spread, then we should deal with it severely. The surgeon has to take all of his tools and excise the cancer or do whatever it takes to get rid of that cancer from the body because he knows it will spread. Everybody knows it will spread. He has to be severe and harsh to the human body to help the human body. If this is true of physical things, and we do that for our own bodies, how much more true is it of spiritual things? That means that if somebody commits a sin, let's say it's the sin of fornication or adultery. Where, where ha, ha, who speaks of sexual sin in terms of fornication and adultery. These days, people say they were with each other, they slept together, they had an affair, um, their boyfriend and girlfriend, a live-in boyfriend, live-in girl. They'll use these kinds of words, but they don't say the man is a fornicator, the woman is a fornicatress. The man is an adulterer and the woman is an adulteress. And they are sinning against God and destroying themselves and their families. They don't say that. But that's what the Bible expects. That's what is meant by speaking uh, severely about it. We have to talk about it as being deathly fatal. And you will go to hell if you try to justify that behavior and say, it's okay in the sight of God. No, it's not. So, verse 14. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. You see, it's not just the Gentiles who have myths, myths and fables. They have their beliefs about the origin of the universe, the origin of the gods, the origins of their marriages, the origins of their children, 
and how one God uh, uh, married another one and, and in the pantheon of gods he has his cohorts and among them they have this and that uh, male god and that, this or that female god, goddess and then this is what happened in that family and because they had this conflict that's why the world is the way it is the, today. This is all mythology. Right. Now the Gentiles have that but the Jews have those kinds of things too. There are Jewish myths. They think that the world was this because there is this um, um, Kabbalah, Kabbalah Judaism that they have the, the, this, this brand of Judaism that deals with the superstitious, that deals with magic and sorcery, that deals with the unseen dark world. They have that brand of Judaism too, which is simply paganism. It's simply divination and paganism. That's all it is. So they have those things and they're saying, no, no, no. Believe in Christ, but also believe in these other things. And they're saying, the commandments of men. Yes, believe in Christ, but also you must do this. Practice this other tradition. You know the elders, the tradition of the elders, right. they said you need to do thus and so before you eat. You need to do thus and so before you walk into the temple. You need to do this thus and so in your house on certain days. You need to do all of that. These are commandments of men. All of these commandments of men and the Jewish myths, both theologically and practically, they drive people away from the truth. When they're pursuing those things in meticulous detail, how could they have time to pay attention to the truth? They don't. They turn away from the truth. If you are constantly reading their voluminous works, you're not reading the Bible, are you? Right? And this kind of stuff happens today in our institutions, Christian institutions, will it require a student to read tens if not hundreds of books and even expect him to have 1,000 or 2,000 books in his library otherwise he cannot be considered a good pastor a knowledgeable pastor a knowledgeable scholar he shouldn't be saying anything unless he has that kind of a library in his private library and then they manipulate church funds and all in order to get a book allowance to buy all those books and to prop themselves up and to make people think that they know what they're talking about uh, and they cite Hebrew and Greek when they don't really know Hebrew and Greek and things like that. So the same thing happens when we are consumed with all these books and not reading and focused on the Bible. Right. It's going to turn us away from the truth. And we end up making those things, those books, those ideologies, philosophies, uh, practices, whatever they are, we make them more important and we make them undermine the Bible. That's what happens with science, does it? Does it not? We read all these so-called scientific books and well-researched books, so-called. We read them and we assume that what they're saying is true. Then we come to the Bible and deny that God created the world in, in six days. We deny that He created the world and that He created Adam and Eve. And the whole human race comes from Adam and Eve through Noah and his sons. They deny all this. How can that be true? Well, they assumed that the books, scientific books, were true. And then they came to the Bible and tried to make it fit. When, when actually, they turn away from the truth when they try to make it fit. 
They claim to make it fit, but they actually turn away from the truth. That's what people do. Today they do it not only in science, they do it in psychology, philosophy, church growth, uh, sociology, anthropology, in any imaginable field, in every imaginable field. They take myths and commandments of men and turn away from the truth. Now, in this case, he may, starting at verse 15, he may also specifically have in mind their ritual law and dietary laws. Ritual and dietary laws because the Jews did not want to give up the distinction between clean and unclean animals and also the rituals of the temple and of the festival days. They didn't want to give up those things. So they told the Christians that you need to do this and that. When actually, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. To the pure, all things are pure. What does he mean by that? He means, if you are if you, pure in heart, you have been redeemed, you do have true faith, then you will live according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, to where he addresses two sins there, forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods, then he says in 1 Timothy 4, 3, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. We can and should receive all, and he says, because it's created by God, it's good, nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with gratitude, it's sanctified by means of the word and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. So if we are pure, then all things that we eat are pure. All things that we do are pure because they're emanating from a clean heart, a redeemed heart, a purified heart. Therefore, what we do according to the will of God is also pure. It emanates from faith. It proceeds with faith. It continues with faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. That's why he says in the last half of verse 15, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, a defiled, impure heart is also called here an unbelieving heart. Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. If they're unbelieving, they pretend on the outside to have purity but inside, they're full of dead men's bones. They are a coffin that looks beautiful on the outside, but inside, it is degrading. It is decomposing. It is corrupt. That's the problem. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So even when they do good things on the outside, they're not good in the sight of God. Amen. He's saying both their mind and their conscience are defiled and nothing is pure. So it doesn't matter. You can perform all the rituals, you can offer the animal sacrifices, you can keep a, a dietary distinction, but nothing, nothing of, of that helps you because you're still impure and unbelieving. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They claim to know God. They profess to know God. They say they have faith. They say that they are Christians. 
but they don't know God. By their actions, they actually show they don't believe in God. They deny Him by their actions, and they're detestable. This, uh, they are um, loathsome to God, an abomination to God, disobedient to God, and worthless to God for any good deed. God considers them hateful, disobedient, and worthless. People who live a contradictory life, a hypocritical life. They claim to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So our life and lips have to match. If they don't match, then we are lying to others, lying to ourselves, and we are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.